Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for those that serve with you and the men that take up the offering and serve us. Sunday school teachers, nursery workers, just the people that make this church what we can do on Sundays. I want to extend again my gratitude for you being here uh, this morning. And I hope that you have a copy of God's Word with you, something that you can turn on or preferably open up and that you will find your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And then hopefully when you came in, you've got one of these bulletins on the back of that. There'll be some notes that uh, help kind of work us through or help guide us through our time together in the Word. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, of course those notes will be behind me on the screen or you can just listen and we just follow along and study God's Word together. We've been in the midst of going through a little bit of the DNA of the church. Several months ago, we as a church embraced some core values, embraced a mission statement. And so we spent the last several weeks looking at the different core values and how we understand them and how we apply them. And then last week and this week, we're looking at the mission statement. And I realize that maybe some people think, well, the mission statement's rather short and rather simple and plain, but at the same time, it tries to not encapsulate every single thought, but we want to get the high points of what we think we exist for as a church. And we have uh, adopted this mission statement that we want to reach people and teach people. So following along the lines of that, last week we were looking at what it means to reach people. We were actually in the letter of 1 Corinthians last week talking about how it is that we reach people. And this morning I want us to turn our attention to the subject or the conversation or the topic of, well, how do we teach people or what do we teach people? Now it's several weeks ago that we were walking through one of the core values of the church. Build families, teach the Bible, and to be the church. And we were walking through that. So out of Psalm 119, we were looking at what it means to teach the Bible. We talked about God's authority and his direction and his protection for our lives. So it's not necessarily that I want to go back and rehash why we should hold up the Bible as authoritative. But what I want to try to do this morning is to answer the question, as a church, what we should we do when it comes to teaching people? How do we teach people? can't remember who it was that told me, but I have heard it before where somebody said that before the world outside these walls will read their Bible, they're first going to read your life. And if we think about the people around us, many of you in this room, you are here this morning because someone else invited you here. And when someone else comes up and says, hey, I want to invite you to church, I want you to come with me to church, sometimes you may say, well, let me look at your life and see what God has done in your life and let me see the testimony in your life before I'll decide that I'll go with you to the church where you attend. Because if I don't see something that I desire, don't see something that I like, or I don't see something that is honoring to God, then why would I go where you go? So not only is this a corporate question as far as us as a collective body, but it's also an individual question. What are we teaching people with our lives? And what are we teaching people with the resources and the opportunity that God has given us? When we come together on a Sunday morning, what are we here for? Five better ways to be nicer at work. Three quick tips on how to have a stress-free life. Two ideas on what to implement coming up in the new year where you can lose weight and feel great and look great. 
What are we doing when we come together? Are we coming for motivation? Are we coming for humanistic? Let me let you feel better and let me encourage you and let me let you go out the door feeling like you've checked a box? Or do we come here and say, when we come in here, it is not about trying to feel good or trying to do better. It's about saying, this is the word of God. And we can spend a lot of our time doing a lot of things that might be good and that might be beneficial and that might make us feel better. But if we're not teaching the Word of God, then we're missing the commands of God. So we need to ask ourselves, how do we teach the Word? How do we teach our word, the Word of God, both collectively when we come together, and also how do we teach the people that we're in contact with at your workplace? Coming up later this month, when you gather together for Thanksgiving, you're teaching people about what you believe about God. Your workplace, your family events, on your social media accounts, I don't like to admit it, but as I am driving down the road, interacting with other motorists on the roadway, in a way, I am teaching them what I believe about God. Grace, mercy, intelligence, all these things that are going on. And so it's one of those things that you're constantly teaching individually and we are constantly teaching corporately. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is going to talk. Paul is going to write, and I think, I, I put there in your notes, Paul is going to give us a little bit of an insight, a sneak peek in how his method works in teaching people. So I'm going to start in chapter 4 and verse 1. If you cop, follow along in your copy as I read aloud from my copy, this is what the Word of God says. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Some of you say, may say faint or may, some of your translations may say give up. But notice how Paul begins this next section of his letter there in 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Now, you always heard that when they talk about the therefore, you got to understand why it is therefore. And you got to get it into context. So if we had lots of time, we could go back and read the, pre the first previous or the previous three chapters in 2 Corinthians. And you're going to find, especially in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that Paul is dealing with a little bit of strife, a little bit of conflict within the church. Because there were those that were there in the church that said, we must continue to keep the Old Testament law. And that is how that we are righteous. And that is how we are good. And that is how we are acceptable to God. So they would go over here and say, we are going to adhere to the rules of Moses. And then there were a select few that said, no, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is Christ, and we're going to listen to him. And then there were these other ones over here that are saying, you know, you can have God, and you can have Jesus, but let me tell you, secularism, humanism, godless ideologies, all these things in the world, the, the idolatry that was rampant there in Corinth, and all of the pagan worship that was rampant there in Corinth. And so you have these individuals saying, you don't need any of that legalism. You don't need any of that social control. You don't need any of that blah, 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 God stuff. You're good enough by yourself. So Paul is dealing with all three of these issues. And he's, and he's trying to make an argument for the supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of God's word. That is where he is driving to here in chapter 4. So when he says, having this ministry, the ministry he's talking about is the opportunity that God has given him and the privilege that God has given him for him to go out and tell people about Jesus. 
He, continued, he considered it an honor to be able to say, I get to tell you about your greatest need. And church, sometimes we don't see it as an honor and a privilege that he has given to the church in 2022 that we get to go out and to tell the good news to people. It is a ministry that we've been given. Paul says, by the, by the mercy of God. He is saying, do you understand, church, how lucky we are that we have good news to share. I know some of you all, you're looking at me like, I don't think it's very good news. We'll get to you here in a minute. But we got to remember that we have a gift. We have a privilege. Can you imagine if all we ever did was just tell people bad news after bad news after bad news after bad news? When I was growing up, I had a friend growing up, and his dad worked for og And his dad had a particular job for og back in the days before they had these smart meters and they could shut your electricity off remotely. When you didn't pay your og bill, he was the guy that would come out to shut off your power. And he would tell you about story after story about showing up at people's houses and the extreme measures they would go to to try to stop him from shutting off their power. And I remember growing up and thinking, what a terrible job to have. Nobody wants to see you. Nobody is happy with you. Everywhere you go, people are mad and threatening. And how depressing could it be going to work knowing you're just going to make a whole bunch of people mad today? A whole bunch of people are going to threaten you, and everywhere you go, somebody's going to be trying to sick a dog on you. I can only imagine having that job that all you did was go around every day, no power, no power, no power, no power, no power, oh, life is over. Can you imagine how depressing that might be? And yet we as a church, we get to go to tell people there's good news, there's hope, and there's help. And there's something to be excited about. I know Tuesday's coming up and some of you more politically active people might have your thoughts about Tuesday. Can I tell you something? After Tuesday, there will still be a fallen world that will still need Jesus. And after Tuesday, we will still have problems both locally and statewide and nationwide. The problems will not end. Doesn't matter whether it's a donkey. Doesn't matter whether it's an elephant. It doesn't matter. We are still going to have issues. And so Peter, I'm sorry, Paul is telling them, do you understand, church, what a gift it is that we get to tell people about Jesus. So he says, we have this ministry by the mercy of God, and because we do, we do not lose heart. So what is Paul trying to address here? Well, I think that Paul is showing us that when it comes to his method for teaching people about Jesus, he has a single purpose. He has a single purpose in mind. Where do you get that from? Well, he doesn't start off by saying, well, you know what? I've got this program. I've got this methodology. I've got these five steps to building a church. I've got these three steps for getting a decision. I've got these four, uh, four, uh, everything I say sounds sarcastic. Paul does not try to mix in all kinds of showmanship in telling people about Jesus. And we live in a day and age that there's a lot of showmen out there doing circus acts and not people contending for the souls around us. So he says, I have a single purpose. What is that single purpose? He says, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. 
But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I want you to just pause here in these first two verses with me and just think about what Paul is trying to explain. Paul is saying, I have one single purpose, and that is God's word. You see that there in verse 2, not to tamper with God's word. And then he says, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He's having this idea that everything comes down to this idea, telling people about Jesus, but he understands within the ranks of preachers or religious teachers or spiritual counselors, there's a lot of individuals out there that are seeking to twist it, make it fit their own idea, profit all off of it. They want to add to it. They want to take away from it. They want to contextualize it. They want to be selective in how they pull one verse and one word and misapply all of these things. And he said, not only do we want to teach God's word, but we're going to reject the corruption. That's what he's talking about in verse 2. We have renounced the disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Why? Because there in Corinth, there was all these false teachers that were saying, I have got the answer. I have got the solution. I have got the way. Follow me. Listen to me. And all it was so they could profit off of someone else's desperation and you go to the bookstore today and they've got entire sections where they are profiting off of someone else's desperation I don't know what to do I'm in financial straits I don't know what to do I'm emotionally shattered I don't know what to do I'm lonely and I'm isolated I don't know what to do I feel like I'm stuck I don't know what to do I feel discouraged I don't want know what I want what to do, blah, blah, blah. And so you go to the bookstore and you find the self-help books. You find the get-rich-quick books. You find all the books that say, let me give you all the answers in this world. And then you come to the end of the book and you realize it's not what you were looking for. And the only place that you're going to find hope and help and satisfaction for an eternity is in the Word of God. So Paul says, I'm not looking to corrupt anything. Rather, I just want to live faithfully. I want to live faithfully and not only in the eyes of God, but I want to live faithfully for you so that I know, so that I know that when it comes in my life and you talk about my eulogy, you talk about how I am known, you talk about my, about my reputation, people will be able to say, you know what? He may have had hobbies. He may have had families. He may have had money. He may have had possessions, but he only had one God. He only had one God. this world is watching to see how many gods you have. This world is watching to see how many gods we have. This world is watching to say they love Jesus, but do they follow him? So Paul is coming in and saying, I have one single purpose, and that is to present Christ. You go to camp, summer camp, sometimes you'll be sitting there. And they'll be waiting for the evening service to start. And one side of the tabernacle, sanctuary, seating area, whatever the people call it, one side, a group will stand up. And I'm not going to yell because they've got me on the sound deal and it won't be effective. But they'll yell and they'll say, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? So this side over here 
will get up. So Dustin Murray will stand up, and he will yell it over here across the room. Then he'll yell it over here, and then Van Swafford will stand up. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? And he's trying to be louder than Dustin. So then he sits down. Well, then Dustin gets some of his buddies. Well, they all stand up and they shout it. And so this goes back and forth and back and forth till finally just somebody, I guess, stops loving Jesus or gives up or something. I don't know because it kind of dies out on its own. But it's like this little tradition you'll get at church camp and you'll see this going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth where they're hollering and they're saying, I love Jesus. So when I'm reading this text and I'm thinking about this text this week, I can just imagine Paul. And he's sitting there and he's looking at the church in Corinth. And he's sitting there looking at the church. And he's sitting there looking metaphorically at you and me. And he says, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. Just watch what I do. And I wonder how many of us can look around our workplace, look around our families, look around our friends, look around our communities, and how many of us can say, I love Jesus, yes I do. I love Jesus, watch what I do. So Paul says, I have a single purpose. But then the text goes on there in verse 3. And he says, now first method to teach people is to have a single purpose. The second method in teaching people is to understand the challenges. To understand the challenges. So in verse 3, he continues on because he realizes that they're proclaiming Jesus and there's some people that are not responding. There's some people that are not reacting. There's some people that they hear it and they just ignore it or they act like they never heard it to begin with. Or there's some people that just don't seem like they get it and they're coming to Paul and saying, Paul, we're talking but nobody seems like they're listening. So he says in verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, now that veil is the idea of going back into chapter 3. He's referencing back to when Moses would go into the tent of meeting and he would hear from God and God would speak to Moses. And when Moses would come out, his face was shining so brightly because of the glory of God. He had seen the glory of God and when he comes out, he puts a veil because the people couldn't stand him because he was shining so bad. So they said, even if, even if our gospel is veiled means it's hidden, which means people can't see it, or they're not getting it clearly, or they're not getting it correctly, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Then he goes on. For we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul says, do you understand the challenges? Yes, there's going to be people that you speak to. Yes, there's going to be people that you walk in front of. Yes, there's going to be people that you live in front of. And yes, you're going to have people that will not respond. They will not believe. They will not listen. He says, do you understand that there are lies all around us? Lies surround us every single day. That's why he says in verse 3, it is veiled to those that are perishing. And then he goes on in verse 4, and he says, in this case, the God of this world. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about Satan and he takes us back to the imagery of Mark chapter 4. And in Mark chapter 4 Jesus is telling a parable and he tells the parable about the seed and the sower. And if you remember in Mark chapter 4 when he's talking about the parable of the seed and the sower he's saying the sower went out to sow the seed and he threw some seed along the path and the birds quickly come down and snatch up to the seed and they take off. Well later the disciples got Jesus by themselves and they said help us understand what is this parable. You have the four types of seeds on the four different types of grounds and 
Jesus says, this is how this parable plays out spiritually. And this is in Mark chapter 4 and verse 15. He says, the word of God is sown in the, the seeds. The word of God is sown in the hearts of the people. But Satan, through deception, through desire, through temptation, through distraction, comes in and snatches that seed out of their hearts. So even though they heard it, even though they, un even though they may have understood what they heard, because Satan was right there at work in their life, it never decided to take root. And that is what Satan is doing even at this moment, surrounding us with lies, surrounding us with deception, surrounding us with distractions. I've heard it said many times, if he can't make you bad, if he can't make you bad, he will make you busy. Some of you are at breakneck speed. You don't have an extra 30 seconds in your life because you are so tapped out. You have no margin. Some of you are tapped out financially. You have no margin. Some of you are tapped out emotionally. You have no margin. Some of you are tapped out spiritually. You have no margin. It's not by accident that we feel like we're running on fumes 24-7. Because he is constantly keeping us on that gerbil, that hamster wheel, if you will, constantly keeping us surrounded, saying, this possession will make you happy. This job will make you happy. That relationship will make you happy. This season of life will make you happy. Oh, it's just a little thing. Oh, it's not a big thing. Lies, 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 lies. And so he tells us in verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the un. Believers, He says, do you understand that when it comes to the word of God and those people that don't respond, those people that aren't coming to Christ, why? It's because Satan is constantly on the attack. Satan is constantly at work. That's why he says, blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Do we understand and do we grasp the idea that people are lost and will go to hell? Do we understand that even at this moment, Satan is actively trying to oppose and counteract the works of the Spirit of God? Do we understand that even at this very single moment, spiritual warfare is taking place? I realize that some people are like, well, you can't talk about that because then we get all charismatic and Pentecostal. And yeah, and then if we don't talk about that, people wonder why they don't understand what's going on because they don't understand the spiritual warfare that's taking place. And they don't understand that at every single moment, Satan doesn't sleep, Satan doesn't give up, Satan doesn't get tired, and you never get to a point in your walk where Satan's like, nah, I'm going to leave them alone, they're too good for me, they're too powerful for me, they're too mature for me, they're too strong for me. I'm not saying that every single problem that comes into your life is a spiritual attack, but let us not be naive and thinking that all of a sudden we are being left alone. And he will attack us in our communities, he will attack us in the church house, he will attack us in our homes. And he will attack us in our families. So he says, understand the challenge. Paul says, I understand the challenge that I'm up against. I realize that this is warfare for the souls of people. But I also want to understand that there's a lot of lies that Satan is sowing all around us. But I also understand this spiritual blindness, these people that are lost, dying, and headed to hell, it is deadly. It's deadly. 
you may say, well, Spence, what does he say? He says up there that some of those, the who, those who are perishing, it's failed. So you're telling me they can respond. You're telling me they can't respond. And this goes back to election. It goes back to predestination. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I have not been given the knowledge to know who will respond and who won't. But I have been given the responsibility to tell everyone. See, sometimes we get caught up in the church and we start to say, well, you know what, we don't have to go talk to them. And you know what, we don't need to worry about them. And you know what, I just don't think God's going to save them. And we start trying to play God and start trying to play judge, jury, and, and, and overruler. You know what, we have been given the opportunity to go tell them about Jesus. Yes, some respond. Yes, some will not respond. Yes, some will listen. Yes, others will not listen. But do you understand that those who die apart from Christ, they're going to go to hell. And whether they're friends, whether they're families, whether they're co-workers. Whether it's parents coming in with children during our fall festival. Whether it's people that you pass coming into church. Individuals that are coming in and out of the doors at Bev's. The greatest need people have is a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And he said, do you understand the challenge? The challenge is, is that we start to think that Satan's off somewhere else and we don't see many of the obstacles in this life as spiritual warfare. We do not understand that Satan is constantly trying to take that seed, to take that truth, to take that influence, to take that opportunity. He is active and he is aggressive. And Satan is continually seeking for ways to pull us away. And you may say, well, Spence, he can't do that to me. I'm saved. You know what he also can do for you? He can get you so far away from God, you have no impact and influence in anybody else. So it's not a matter of saying, well, I'm saved, so I am good. Well, that's great, but what about the ten people around you? Let me think about it like this. Your hair. Has anybody ever sat and watched their hair grow? I mean, has anybody ever just sat in front of the mirror and said, I'm going to be here, and I'm just going to watch my hair grow? Adam doesn't really have a lot of opportunity on that. But it's one of those things. I mean, do you ever sit there, and you just sit in the chair, and you say, I'm going to look in the mirror, and I'm going to watch my hair grow? No. But does your hair grow? Yes. You may not see it in an hour. You may not see it in a day. You may not even see it in a week. But then we wake up one morning, and you're just like, I need to do something about that. It grows. Just same with your fingernails. How many of you all just sit around and just look at your fingers and say, I'm just watching my fingernails grow? No, it happens. It gradually happens. It works itself over in time. In 1999, October of 1999, I was the same height, the same shoe size, and I was graduating from my military training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and I weighed 194 pounds. Do not weigh that anymore. How did it happen? Bite after bite. Time after time. And what's my point? 
whether it's your hair, whether it's your fingernails, or whether it's your waistline, it's not a matter that it happens all at once. No, Satan knows that he's not just going to bombard you with, God is fake, turn to me. He knows that he can just erode a little bit at a time, and a little bit, and a little bit, and the next thing you know, you and I are so far away from where God wants us to be. And how did it happen? It happened one decision after another, one moment after another, one compromise after another, one slip after another, one uh, just laziness after another. And the next thing you know, we are far away from God. Brothers and sisters, we are constantly under the challenge of staying as close to God as possible. And yet how many times do we go through this life and go, well, I went to church so I'm good, or I own a Bible so I'm good, and we do not understand the challenge. Paul knew that the challenge was that Satan always was coming against him and against those who we was ministering to. And he says, no, the Satan is constantly at work. So he says the first method to his teaching is a single purpose. The second method is to understand the challenge. And the third method he picks up in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul is not saying that you have the power and it's all up to you. But Paul is saying that you have an opportunity. You have a role to play in this. You have a place in the body of Christ in reaching people for Jesus Christ. Every single one of you in this room have an opportunity to be an influence, to be a testimony, and to be a part of the kingdom work. Every single one of you. Well, I don't have a title. You don't need a title. I don't have a position. You don't need a position. I don't have a responsibility. You don't need a responsibility. Every single one of us has already been, been given a title, if we're a believer, and that is called follower of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us have a, have a position, and that is follower. Every single one of us have a place to serve. But what does Paul say right there at the last part of verse, or the middle part of verse 6? He says, who has said, and he's reading out of Genesis 1 and verse 3, let light shine out of darkness. What am I saying this morning? I'm saying that Paul's method for teaching other people was to shine brightly. To shine brightly. Bright. He understood that every single person in the church could be a light for the kingdom of God. And that doesn't require age. That doesn't require money. That doesn't require education. That doesn't require all kinds of knowledge to be able to answer any question in the world. That just requires a willingness so that when people look at you, they see Jesus in you. So that's why he says in verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. He's saying it's not a matter of me going, hey, look at me, I'm Paul, I'm educated. Look at me, I'm Paul, I am traveled. Look at me, Paul, I'm successful. I can do miracles. I've done this, I've done that, I am known. He doesn't say it's not about me at all. About Jesus. And it's not a matter of us in this room. It's not a matter of the history of this church. It's not a matter of the ministries that we're engaged upon. It's not a matter of the traditions or the hopes or the ideas. 
All that matters in here is do we proclaim Jesus. So he says, let the message shine. Let the message of Jesus Christ be what people see in you. So that's why he says, we proclaim who? Jesus. Jesus as Lord. But there's a lot of times that this world sees other gods in our lives. And it's hard for us to come in on Sunday and say Jesus is Lord and then go out and on Tuesday say money is Lord. Or on Tuesday say children are Lord. Or on Wednesday saying that I am Lord. He says you get an opportunity to shine. You get an opportunity to shine, and you're not shining yourself. See, it's one thing if you're going to tell people how cool you are or how awesome you are or how amazing you are if you're none of those. And I can understand people would sit back and go, you know what, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm really that great of a person. I really don't feel like I've got that much to offer, so I'm just quiet and I'm just reserved and it's just me. And Paul's not, Paul's not beating you up if that's your attitude. What Paul is trying to say is that it's not you shining you. You get to reflect Christ. And I don't know if I can say this like it's in my brain. But it's not a matter of you pointing, to, pointing people on how awesome you are. It's you have an opportunity to show people how awesome Jesus is. And what does it say about us if I don't point anybody to Jesus? How can I sit there and say, Jesus is awesome, Jesus is all I need, Jesus is the Lord of my life, and I never tell anybody about him. I never point anybody to him, and nobody can see him active in my life. How can I really say, Jesus is all that in a bag of chips, if they don't see it in my life? And that is where we're at with too many professing Christians today is they say we have this relationship with the Lord and you can't see it in their lives. And Paul says, I understand if you were not engaged in evangelism, if evangelism was all about you. But it's not about you. It's about Jesus. So what we get to do is to go around and tell people about Jesus. I'm not there yet. Someday I may be there as a new grandparent. And if you ever get in contact with most grandparents, most grandparents, when they have that first grandbaby, they're excited and they're happy. They're not having to stay up at night. They're not having to deal with the diapers. They're not having to deal with all the baby stuff, but they get to enjoy the sweetness of the baby stuff. And I can tell you that you got those grandbabies, and when those grandbabies come, you want to tell people about your grandbaby. And you want everybody to know, I got a grandbaby. And you're excited about grandbaby. In fact, you might even find some total stranger at Walmart and say, hey, can I show you a picture of my grandbaby? Why? Because you're excited about your grandbaby. It's not that you're showing a picture of you or something you got going on. You're saying, look, I am proud of this and I'm excited about this. Maybe a new dog. Maybe be a new pickup truck. Some of you may be a new tractor. Something you get you excited about and you want to go show people. And yet when it comes to the things of God, Paul says you should be even more excited. You should be even more pumped up. You should be even more ready to say, I'm not telling you about me. I'm telling you about Jesus. And church, we come together and we just 
We're dull. We're distracted. We're too busy. So Paul says, let the message shine, let your testimony shine, and let God's glory shine. He says at the last part of verse 6, let the light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He said, your aim in teaching is not to bring glory or light to you. It is to bring glory and honor to God. This past September, we were traveling somewhere and it was around the state fair time and Used to, they had them all throughout the state fair park down in Oklahoma City, but they got these big, giant spotlights. And they got these big old giant spotlights, and they're shooting straight up in there. They used to have them around the uh, big old tower that went up there and circled around and come back down, the Space Needle or whatever it was. But they had these big, giant spotlights. And they used to, they had moved back and forth, but you had these big beams of light just shooting up in the air into space. And so we're driving around. I don't remember where we were at, but I remember one of my boys saying, Dad, what is that? And you could see in the horizon, around dark time, the state fair was going on, you saw one of these beams of lights just shooting straight up in the air. And they're like, where is that coming from? And I said, well, son, it's coming from the state fair. They got these big, giant spotlights, and they've got them shining straight up in there. And they said, why? To make people know that that is where the fair is at. And it draws people to the fair. Used to back in the day, they would have those things moving around. And you could see and you would know, that is the place that I need to go. Why? Because the light was shining up into the darkness and was shining and saying, here, here I am, come here. What does that have to do with us, Spence? Well, I wonder when people look out across the landscape of the community of Wellston, do they see anything coming out of this church? Do they see any kind of marker to say that is where God is glorified, that is where Jesus is proclaimed, and that is where I can find hope and help for the problems in my life? What marks us as a church? Paul says, let light shine out of darkness. He is saying that this same God that commanded light to appear and overcome the darkness, he has shown in our hearts. The word of God has illuminated our hearts, has shown in our hearts. Why? So that we can show that light to other people. Can you just imagine being the kind of witness and the kind of testimony and the kind of follower of Jesus Christ that people can find their way to God and to his people by following your life. So then how do we do that? How do we do that both individually and corporately? Well, just three things and we'll be done. First one is this. We must know the good news. We must know the good news. He, he tells us back up there, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 2 and verse 3, he's having this idea that we need to be truth speakers. We need to tell people the good news. Not my news, not your news, not someone else's news. We need to tell them the good news. What is the good news? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 lays it out. Christ came. He lived a life that you should live, but can't live. Died on a cross, was buried in the tomb, rose on the third day, and he has made it possible for you to be forgiven of your sin. 
See, the reality is, is everyone in this room has sinned against God. And that sin carries the penalty of death. And the only way that we can be in right standing before our Creator is to have our sins forgiven. But I can't forgive my own sins. You can't forgive my own sins. Only Christ can forgive my sins. So when I come to the point that I recognize my sin, I confess my sin, I cry out for forgiveness, and God in His mercy, through the blood of Jesus Christ, and the price that He paid, forgives me of my sin. And that's good news. That's good news. You're looking at people and going, I realize it seems dead end. I realize it seems dark. I realize that you don't have any hope or any kind of optimism for the future. But do you know God loves you? And that Jesus died for you? And regardless of what you're going through, God is still in charge. So we must know the good news. But not just that, we must engage the, with the good news. We must go after people. Why? Because he tells us right there in verse 4, Satan is constantly at work. Satan is constantly trying to distract and to uh, pull people away. And he's constantly trying to get people where they're not listening to things of God. And what a pity it is when the church is being outworked by Satan. I don't, want to get off on a, I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail here, but do you understand that Satan is not omnipresent? Now, some of you may not be familiar with what that word. Omnipresence is meaning that he is everywhere at the same time. God is omnipresent. He can be everywhere at the same time. Satan is not. What does that mean? That means that Satan can't be in Wellston and in Luther and in Chandler all at the same time. So if he is here picking on us, then he's giving someone else a break. So my point is, is that even though Satan may be, may be buffeting, may be challenging, may be opposing, what a shame it is if you've got 175 people here at the church this morning and we're being outworked by one devil. And yet how many times do we find ourselves being outworked, out-hustled? We have to engage. We must engage the community around us with the good news of Jesus Christ. We must engage because Satan is continually trying to blind people, continually trying to distract people, continually trying to derail people. And we must engage with the good news, not self-help, not motivation, not charismatic, touchy-feely, make-you-like-me kind of stuff. We must engage with the good news. And this last one, and this comes right out of verse 6, we must live the good news. Oh, Jesus is good news. The Bible's good news. Salvation, oh, it's good news. Redemption, oh, that's good news. Then let's live like it's good news. Shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's given you his word. He's given you salvation. He's given you forgiveness so that you can show it to other people. I wonder what you're teaching people today. Bow your heads with me.